Matthew, the 16th chapter, starting around verse number 13. I'll be reading out of the King James Version. If you got it, say, I got it. And the Bible says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which art in heaven. Kindly be seated at this time. Each of the ministers here this morning has been tasked with giving a charge to the church for the upcoming year. And Mountain View, as we approach the upcoming year, I want to issue a challenge to you um, from me personally. I want you to ask yourself, when you're listening to music in your car, when you're on your couch watching a movie, who do you say he is? When you're planning your future as you consider dates in the future, as you start to swipe left or swipe right, Turn to your neighbor and ask him, who do you say he is? Now, I won't ask you to do that again. I'm just going to ask that you turn around and give him a knowing look. As our dearly departed brother Wesley pointed out, this is flu season. So we want to keep that to ourselves. But when I ask you again, just look to your neighbor and give him that look. But when you're facing your enemies and you're looking at your bills, I want you to ask yourself, who do you say that he is? When we're making life decisions, we have to ask yourself, who do we say that he is? Such a simple question has such a heavy answer. I want you to understand that we find this, this account in a small pericope of scripture. In the Gospel of Matthew, where uh, Matthew makes it evident to his, to his Jewish audience that Jesus is, in fact, the son of David. As he begins starting with the lineage of Matthew, I want you to understand in ancient times, if your daddy wasn't Jewish, then you were not Jewish. But we also find that a little bit further in the text, uh, in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, Jesus had been going back and forth with the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, and they began asking and said, Master, we'd like to see a sign from you. But Jesus responded in Matthew 12 and 38, he says, no sign shall be given except that of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Today I want to keep in the theme dealing with the I amness of Christ, and I don't want to touch too much on what Jamel did as he did an explicit, an exquisite job. But I do want to remind you that, as John said in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And we drop down the verse number 14, it tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Meaning that in his I amness, he stepped in the middle and he put on flesh, a walking, living, breathing word to man. But it also tells us that in verse number 18, that no time any man has seen God. As a matter of fact, it says that we were able to be held him and Jesus, he is the exogeme of God, meaning he explains the father. So whenever that we have an opportunity to look at one of the gospel accounts, we have to understand not only are we looking at this man Jesus perform his ministry, but we are in fact looking at dealing with the character of God. As we move forward into this, I want you to understand, starting at verse number 13 in Matthew, when it says, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am. It is no coincidence that Jesus chose this moment in time to check the pulse of his disciples as he was doing his ministry, understanding that he was facing a timetable, knowing that his time on earth was coming to an end. Here we have a carpenter, a young man from the, from the city of Bethlehem, and in the backdrop, they are approaching the land of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi wasn't necessarily known for being a Jewish community, but it was known for being one of the bedrock of the, of the religious world. See, what you had going on in, in Caesarea Philippi is that you had all the Syrian religions taking place. They had several temples made out to Baal. 
Not only that, you have the birth of panism or, or, or naturalism. One of the Greek gods of Pan or, or Panaeus. It said who came out of one of those caves. He, he, is the, he is probably the founder of what we recognize as, as paganism today. Wrapped around that you have Greek mythology along with Zeus and, 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 and Hades and all those other Greek gods. Jesus is standing in front of his disciples in the bedrock of this religious community. But then on top of that you have a large temple of a shrine built to the, to the, to the powers that be. You see, Caesarea Philippi used to be named Panaeus, but it was renamed by Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great. And, and Philip named it after Caesar and after himself naming it Caesarea Philippi. And so in this, this, this religious metroplex, you have this large marble white temple that was built in recognition of Caesar. And then you have Jesus, as they get ready to enter into this place, he says... Who do men say that I am? Now, if you imagine, it'd almost be like one of us going to the BET Awards. And your, and your, and your wife or your husband ask you, am I the best woman to you? Am I the best woman here? Am I the best looking woman here? And I'm most handsome? I bring that out to, to, to show the contrast of, of what people may have seen at, the, at that point. But what I want you to see here is that even though he was in that place, there were some things that people had to recognize. And he said in them in, in verse number 15, he says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the question that he was asking, is, he seems to ask or heard, I want you to understand, when they, when they responded, they said, some say that thou art Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This was the perception of the people around. The people that were watching from afar had this perception of Christ. And I want you to understand, for them to make the, to, to make the assumption that he was John the Baptist was because at the time, Herod Antipas, who was the Herod in charge and, and, and the Herod who more than likely oversaw the, the, the trial of Jesus, where he said that, that him and Pilate became friends. He, he seemed to have the belief that John the Baptist would have actually come back from the dead. Now, you have to understand, he was, he was personally responsible for the death of, of John the Baptist. But he wasn't the only one that held that belief. There were some Jews and others in the area who did not know Jesus, that thought that Jesus might actually be John the Baptist. But then the other revelation that Jesus might actually be Elias seemed to, seemed to indicate that they viewed him as just another one of God's great prophets. Because it was prophesied that, that Elijah would actually visit his people before the Lord would come, before his Messiah would come. And so they, they, they knew that there was a great prophet among them. But yet they weren't quite sure to say that it was the promised one. You see, the, the idea of, of, of the Savior that was to come they had this idea of a strapping young man, bulging with muscles, a, a Herculean type of a man. But the kid that showed up was a scrawny, ruddy, undesirable looking man. One that did not seem to indicate that he possessed the features of a conqueror. And because of that, they, they relegated him to being Elias. He's a great prophet. But then they said, they said well, he could possibly, Jeremiah, now Jeremiah holds an interesting linked to the Jewish people, as it was rumored that, that, that Jeremiah was the one that, that, that took the Ark of the Covenant and ran and hid it in the mountains. And so they believed that could, this could possibly be him. We don't know, we're not quite sure, we're just watching from a distance. But we believe that, that, that this great man could either be Elias, John the Baptist, or maybe he's Jeremiah. But then Peter answered. Jesus asked him, he said, who do you say that I am? And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, there's going to come a point in your life where you're going to have to answer that question of who do you say he is? 
You see, it's easy to, to say who he is when, when life is going well, when you, when you have all your mental capacity and everything seems to be going your way. The, the deposit is made on time every month into your bank account and your kids are acting right and your, your, your mate is acting right. But the question is going to come, who do you say he is when that last check comes? Who do you say he is when your spouse act like they can't get right? When your kids acting like they, 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 their father is the devil? Who will you say he is? But what Peter did was interesting. Peter's response was, he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The designation of the Christ was the, was the, was the term of, of the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one who had been anointed to redeem his people. Mountain View, I want you to know that there is only one that can redeem you. The church of Oprah can't redeem you. Your financial plans and your, all the schemes that you're engaged in will not save you. That relationship that you believe to be a godsend is not going to be the thing that saves you. But the one that saves is the Messiah. And not only that, Peter, he put the cream on the top when he said, the son of the living God. We face a world today where there are a lot of gods, but none of them are a living, breathing God. A living, breathing God is a God that delivers his people from perishing, who protects his people in times of trouble. He redeems them by sending his son to be the perfect sacrifice. I want you to understand that there's going to be many, many voices and opinions that will come to the point in your life where you will have to make that decision. Just turn to your neighbor and give them that look. It's all right. Just give them that look. To determine the true value of Jesus and not just another great sound of advice but, or philosophy or more, you have to, he has to do more. He has to be more to you than your job. He has to be more to you then you're standing on social media. He has to be the source of your life. He has to be more than your own sufficiencies. Just as that question was confrontational to Peter and his beliefs, Jesus is putting you on the spot. I don't care who you are, but there will come a time where you will need to answer. You will need to answer. Peter realized that the aforementioned titles fell short in describing Christ. Although these names were of great men of influence, only Christ was appropriate, the name that meant to the anointed one. Joshua tells us about the living God that we serve when, when God says, this is how you know that the God is living among you, that he will certainly drive you out before the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, meaning he is a God that delivers Baal could not deliver his people. Baal was a mute, dumb God that never responded to his people in their time of crisis or need. You won't find deliverance in men, nor these relationships, nor in money, nor in the gods that are crafted by men, these modern-day gods that we look up to. But God delivers us from our hopelessness. He delivers us from our despair. He delivers us from our desperation. He delivers us from ourselves. In Matthew 6, verse 17, Jesus responded to Peter. And he answered and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which art in heaven. I want you to understand that the revelation of God, of Christ, is not something that is obtained secondhand. This is not something that you can get watching from afar. The revelation that Peter had came from a personal relationship with God. Now, I'm not, talk, I'm not saying that in order for be, to be saved, that you must have a personal relationship with God. Hear me out. A lot of people get caught up in this illusion thinking, I don't have to be a part of a community of faith. As long as my personal relationship with, with, with God is all right, I don't, I don't have to worship. I'm not required to gather with the saints. If you notice, Peter had this personal revelation within the fellowship of a community. 
within the fellowship of a community. You need to see this. You see, Peter, when he walked with Jesus, he met Jesus in his home in John 1.38. He came into his tent to see where he was about. You've you got to go where he dwells. But not only that, you've got to allow Jesus to get in your ship like he did with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In Luke 5, when, they, when he asked them to, 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 to allow him into their ship, Jesus was merely asking to be separated from the crowd. He wanted to be sanctified. A lot of us struggle with hearing the voice of God because we never set him apart from all the other sounds that is entering our voice, entering our head. He's asking for separation. But not only that, he, he's asking you to let him in your home. Once you allow him to come into your home, as according to Revelations 3 and 20, then he needs to, he needs to break your bread. Now, you may be asking, he said, break my bread, break my bread. You need to allow him to bless your stuff. If you notice in Luke 24 and 30, when he was walking along the way, the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, they invited him in. And what happened is this, Jesus took their bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And immediately their eyes were open. It was in the intimate, it was in the intimate fellowship, the personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with God right there that their eyes were open, and they realized that God was among them. Who do you say he is? Who, do, who are we going to say he is going into 2020 Mountain View? Will we continue to sit on the shores, on the, on the seaside, coming every Sunday for fish and chips as Jamel breaks into us the bread? Or will we be the disciples that get into the boat as he constrained the 12 and move over to the other side? I'm asking. You got to let him break your bread. But then you have to allow him to touch your stuff as he did with the, with the widowed woman in Luke 17 who was carrying her dead and only son, Jesus came into the midst and he touched her son and gave her back that which was dead. Many of us are carrying a lot of dead things in our lives and we don't want Jesus to touch it. And when you don't allow him to touch the things that are in your life that you feel are dead or beyond repair, you're saying he's not who, he, who I believe him to be. Who do you say he is? Again. Look to your neighbor and just give them that look. 2020 has to be the year where we define our relationship with Jesus as, as not just being a good man, good of good advice and philosophy. But he is the Christ, the one that's been anointed to redeem us. When you do that, look at what he said here to Peter. And he says, and also I say unto you, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He said unto you, he said, you are Peter, you are a rock. And upon this truth, what is this truth? You recognizing the I amness of who I am. That is the cornerstone. That is the foundation on which my people, those that have been called out, shall thrive. It is the foundation of his I amness that is the cornerstone of our faith. If you can't grasp that, then you're building your foundation on nothing. You see, you're building your foundation when he says, I am the way, that is a cornerstone. When he says, I am the truth, that is part of his cornerstone. When he says, I am the light, that is part of his cornerstone. The I amness of who he is is how he builds his church by embracing his I amness. Thank you very much, Mountain View. Good morning, family. Everybody, all right? Is everybody all right? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I tell you, uh, it's just been, it's, <laughs> it's been an adventurous morning thus far. But nevertheless, I am glad to be in the house of God. I thought, I thought for a moment that um, that my wife had looked at me and just just made a hot all over 
again, but it just, it, it, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't me, but nevertheless, I'm glad that she is okay. So y'all keep my wife in prayer. Amen. Amen. Uh, we finally, we finally got her to the back, and uh, she thought we had stolen Brother Vasquez's wheelchair. But nevertheless, we're glad that both of y'all are here. Praise God. <laughs> he said he would have given it up. Amen. That's all right. But nevertheless, uh, we're thankful for those of you who have come, especially those of you who are traveling. Thank you, Brother Dexter, for being here. Amen. That's, that's, that's a good friend of mine. Dex, wave your hand. That's one of the coolest brothers running around this piece. Amen. So glad to have you. But nevertheless, uh, we don't have long. And so what I want to do is I want to look uh, at the book of Luke. Um, I want to look in chapter number four. We shared, we shared some of these thoughts with, uh, with Brother Hamilton, and, and he, he wanted to make sure that we shared this same thing on today. And so I want to look at the book of Luke. The chapter is four. Um, I want to look at verse number, we'll just, we'll just look at verse number one, uh, uh, two and three, just, just for, for emphasis sake, because we don't have long. You, you know it's wrong for you to give a preacher 15 minutes and tell him just go. You, that's, that's, just, that's just dirty. That's just wrong. But nevertheless, let's, let's keep our minister uh, in prayer while he is away. If you, if you have your Bibles in Luke chapter 4, uh, Dr. Luke, he writes and he says, and Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil and in those days he did eat nothing and when they were ended. <laughs> he afterward hungered. This speaking about the about our master. One day, one day, that last enemy, death, will be destroyed. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but one day, God will take his celestial hands and wrap them around the throat of death. He will choke the life and the death out of death. And death will be no more. Because he says, he says, I want you as my children, as my people, as my offspring, as my posterity. I want you to not have to taste of death. And then we'll come forth through that cry, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But have you found Luke chapter 4? I want you all to see this, man. Before we begin, before we begin, in proper, in prop, in proper study or proper exegesis, proper, uh, all that good stuff, <clears throat> I want to I help us to see something. Luke is one of the synoptic gospel writers. The, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, everybody say synoptic. synoptic. Now you just, you just learned a big fancy preacher's word, praise God. Synoptic Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Synoptic means, it comes from, uh, from two words. Optic meaning to see, the S-Y-N, sin, uh, meaning the same. The synoptic gospels means that it, concerning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they see the same way. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They write basically from the same perspectives, or they write concerning a lot of the same things. However, John stands uh, uh, off by himself because he doesn't write from the same vein or from the same perspective as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What I find interesting 
is that when you look at the temptation of Jesus, when you look at the temptation of the master, Matthew captures a lot of the, the temptation. Mark only deals with, actually, when you look in Mark's gospel, in his account, he really just deals with two verses. So Matthew writes, a, uh, uh, writes approximately 10 verses. Mark writes two verses. Luke turns around and his passage concerning the temptation is just about the same length as Matthew's. John, who, who, who walked with Jesus, John didn't even touch the temptation. So here it is. You have Matthew who writes about the temptation. Mark covers a small piece of the temptation Luke turns around and he writes just as much as Matthew. Many of us don't find that interesting, but watch this. Matthew was the tax collector that Jesus had, had called to walk with him. Mark was one that Jesus had called to walk with him. But Dr. Luke, did you not know that Luke never even met Jesus Luke, when he starts out in Luke chapter 1, he talks about and he says that uh, I, I'm writing because there are many who took it upon themselves to write about Jesus. And so I'm going to do the same thing. But Luke talks about how the gospel and the things that were explained were given to us by those that heard him. Luke is admitting that I never met Jesus. So Matthew writes. And he has a pretty nice section. <laughs> Mark writes. He really don't cover too much. Luke talks just as much as Matthew does. John doesn't even cover the temptation. You scratching your head just like I was. You know what's interesting? Is that, is that when you look at the Gospels, when Luke writes, Luke covers just as much as Matthew does. But Luke never walked with Jesus. Luke, you see, when, when, when the Bible was put together, when the, when, uh, uh, when, the, when the gospel was written, the Bible talks about how uh, uh, holy men spake as they were moved by the Spirit. You know what's deep about that is that a lot of times we look at scripture and we misunderstand even how it's applied. The point is this. When God inspires a man to write, he doesn't put that man in a trance. <laughs> it's not as if though they were, they were given things that they had not seen and, and they were told to write about these things. What happened was is that people just like you and I, when you see something that means something, you can become inspired. Well, Matthew walked with Jesus. So he saw what the master did, and it was inspiring to Matthew. Mark walked with Jesus. So the things that he saw inspired him. Luke had never walked with Jesus, but Luke was inspired. Why? Because Luke ended up running around with some folk who had been running around with Jesus. <laughs> matter of fact, matter of fact, Luke being a doctor, he has a he has a mindset that says that he's caught up in details. If 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 the rest of the gospel writers are right, then what Luke does is Luke starts talking with Matthew. Luke, Luke, he was running buddies with Paul. Matter of fact, on one occasion, Paul talked about how he was off by himself and he said, only Luke is with me. So Paul had talked with Luke. So Luke, when he begins to write, Luke writes from the aspect of things that he had been shared information about. Matter of fact, Luke was so inspired that he not, not, not only did he write the book of Luke, but he turned around and he wrote another book. The other book that he wrote was the book of Acts. So Luke writes the book of Luke and he writes the book of Acts. That's all Luke's writing. But Luke had never walked with Jesus. My question is, 
when it comes down to the temptation, you see, again, again, what we're pushing for, we want us to have educated amens. We want, we, uh, when you say amen, we want you understanding what it is that you're talking about. So, so my question is this. In looking at the temptation, when you see the temptation of Jesus, who was there? The Bible says that, that, that Jesus was there, right? Y'all with me? It says that Satan was there because he was the one tempting him, but Jesus was led by the Spirit. Those three were there. That don't do nothing for you. Okay. Okay, fine. Jesus is there. The devil is there. The Holy Spirit is there. Right? Okay. Matthew writes about stuff that he saw. <laughs> Mark writes about stuff that he saw. Luke writes about stuff that he was inspired about. John didn't even touch it. If only Jesus, if only the Spirit, and if only Satan were there, how in the world do we read about it in the Gospels? Where does the information come from? How in the world do we have the temptation of Jesus and only he was there, the spirit was there, and you know Satan didn't write about it. But yet we find it in the Gospels. I'm convinced of this. You see, when, when, when it comes down to folk that you care about and folk that you run with, you see, when you, when you really love someone, you want to make sure that they don't face and have to deal with the same foolishness that you've had to deal with. When you really love a person, you want to make sure that they don't have to run into the same level of hard knocks as you. And I just believe, I just believe that when it comes down to the temptation of the master, Jesus wanted to make sure that he shared with his disciples his moment and period of loneliness, temptation, and frustration. It was Jesus that told the disciples about what he went through. Matthew just wrote about it. Mark wrote about it. Luke was inspired and Luke wrote the most about it. Luke, Luke captured what Jesus was talking about. Jesus, oh, good. I want y'all to see this, man. It's almost as if, though, what happens is that, is that you, have two, you have two heavyweight boxers who enter, who enter into a ring. The, ring. the ring is called the wilderness. Or, or Luke calls it the wilderness, but, but another word for, for, for wilderness, you can actually call it a garden. So what you have, what you have is Jesus and Satan. They enter into a cosmic garden and they are there as two opponents facing off. And Jesus decides to make sure that he tells his disciples about this event. So, so what Jesus breaks down is what happened. So, so you take you take Satan now, who is deciding to tempt Jesus and to test Jesus because he was not part of the incarnation of the master. He did not fully understand what was happening when Jesus, when he was, when, when God became flesh. And so, and so, so if my memory serves me correctly, there was, there was an Adam in Eden. And the Adam that was in the Garden of Eden, he and Eve 
they were tested. But Bishop, Bishop, they failed. When Adam and Eve were tested, they failed. But the second Adam, <laughs> the first Adam, basically when you boiled, when you boiled the temptation in the garden down, what Satan was doing is he was asking that Adam, can you be, can you really be like God? This second Adam in this other garden, when you boil down that temptation, Satan is really saying, can you as God, can you really be like man? If you be man, turn these stones into bread. But he didn't know that the Jesus, the God that I serve, was going to one day be on a mountaintop with two fish and five loaves of bread and still turn, oh my gosh. So you got three parts of the temptation. The first part, he says, turn these stones to bread. The second part, he says, he says, if, if, if you throw yourself off this temple, then you should be okay. And then, and then I see him as the boxing match just continues to go on. Finally, he gets so frustrated because Jesus is just being Jesus. The master is just being as cool as he is. He, he, he's tempting him with earthly things. And finally, he gets frustrated. And so he lets the cat out the bag. He says, just fall down and worship me. He gives up the goods and he says, just fall out and worship me. And then, and then what Jesus does is the way that he deals with them. He says, he says, it is written. He says, it's for every temptation, the master responds and he says, <laughs> it is written. As I close, as I close, here's the, here's the thought that really moved, that really moved me. Because what Satan was doing, he was pushing, he was pushing Jesus because he really didn't know who he was. He really did, because see, he had dealt with Jesus, but he dealt with Jesus in heaven. You ever read Revelation 12? And what happened, what happened uh, uh, with all of that was the fact that Jesus had been in heaven. And Satan was an angel that was cast out from heaven. He hadn't dealt with an earthly Jesus. He didn't fully know how to, how to, how to rock with this new Jesus. And so trying to figure out is, you know, who are you? He comes with these little, uh, this, this little funky temptation. Jesus deals with it by, by basically ignoring him. Jesus answers, every response is, it is written. And, and Satan was basically saying, if you can, if you can prove who you are, I'll leave you alone. Jesus being Jesus steps back and says, I know who, who I am as God. And so, so the way that I'm going to answer you is by not answering you. <laughs> and he remains who he is. And now, and now the question really is, how do you see Jesus? How, how do you respond to the master? Well, you could have, you could look at him as, as being the, uh, the type of Messiah who is a people's Messiah, who could turn stones into bread to feed the multitudes. He could be a Torah Messiah, standing tall at the lofty pinnacle of the temple, you could look at him as a king messiah ruling over not just Israel, but all of the kingdoms of earth. In short, what Satan was offering Jesus was the chance to be the thundering messiah that we all want. But at the end of the day, on a deeper level, we don't want, we don't want to look at Jesus as being a suffering 
Messiah. You see, it makes you uncomfortable to look at him as being one who suffers. He's strong and he's steady and uh, he's omnipotent. And we see all the great things about Jesus. But one thing that I appreciate about the master is that when he became flesh, he took, he took flesh for value. And he says, he says, I'm going to go through everything that you go through because I want you to understand that I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing this for me. You see, a lot of times when we look at Jesus, we want to say that he came down and he suffered so that he could relate back to God. That's not, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not proper theology. Jesus did not come down to earth so that he could experience the human experience so that he would know what it was like. He was omnipotent. He was omniscient. Meaning, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. Jesus did not have to learn what it was like to be human. The reason why he came down and experienced humanity as a human, not so that he could say that I know what it's like, but so that I could say that I know that he knows what it's like. Because if I know that he knows what it's like, then I can look at what I go through and compare it to what he went through. And I know that if he can make it, If my master could do it, it just makes sense that if I pull up my pants real, if I put on the right stuff, and if I have proper faith, if he can do it, I can do it. He's saying, I shared, I shared the deep stuff with me because it was important to me to make sure that you know some of the stuff that I've been through. It's a beautiful thing when you can sit down with your children and share with them some of the deep stuff that you've gone through. It's nice to be able to sit back and be able to relate with some folk every now and again. And Dedrick, I'm just glad that Jesus had enough love for me to be honest with some disciples about some stuff that he was going through because he's saying, I want you to know that if I went through it, just come roll with me because I got you too. Because I love you just as much. Matter of fact, I love you more than you could ever love yourself. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm thankful that Jesus had enough love to reveal what he went through so that you and I could know that we can make it too. God bless you and Godspeed. Brother Dedrick. Hallelujah. Oh, we're singing. Hallelujah. You know I've been running ever since I made a start. You know that my days are well, King Jesus going to make my burdens. And you know that in love is a bubbling over. Oh, in my in my world, we're singing hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, and you know I've been running ever since I made a stop, well, and you know that my days are, oh, King Jesus gonna make my burdens, and you know that his us to be here on this time side of life that we can worship him one more time in spirit and in truth and he didn't have to do it because none of us lived so good on last week that we deserve any more grace on today but he loved us so much that he spared our lives up until his present time and y'all we ought to praise him for that if you can't find no better reason to worship God praise him for that 
Amen. Thank you, Brother Winrow, for your message this morning. Uh, we also want to thank Brother Jones for their uh, inspiring and thought-provoking uh, messages on this morning. Uh, they pose a challenge uh, when uh, we have a, a time frame to speak in because I, I just got to use whatever left. Yeah, I, I was supposed to have 15 minutes, but I know y'all about ready to go, so I got to make mine happen in about 10. <laughs> but we are thankful to God uh, today for this opportunity. Pray for our, our pastor and first lady in, his abs in their absence today as they're ministering afar that God uses them in a mighty, mighty way. It's good to be here this morning, Mountain View. Good to see all of you that love the Lord and decided to come and worship God on this morning. Real quickly this morning, real quickly, I want to invite your attention to a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, about it, it's the shortest uh, passage in the Bible. Uh, John chapter 11, uh, verse number 35, a passage that we were uh, taught to quote as little children. Uh, John chapter 11 Verse number 35, you find these words penned, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. God, we thank you, we praise you, we lift you up because there's none like you in all the earth. We ask now that you bless us with a word from on high. Use your servant as you see fit. Hide me behind the cross that men might see less of me and more of thee. We'll be careful to give your name the praise, the honor, and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus wept. As I stated, probably one of the first Bible verses that uh, we learned as little children, uh, Jesus wept. And the interesting thing about John chapter 11, verse number 35, is the question that comes to mind, what would make Jesus weep? What could happen in life's circumstances, life's uh, situations that would cause our Lord Jesus to weep? It's found here in the text. We have in the text this morning a dying brother and two doubting sisters. Our dead brother and two doubting sisters. And one of the things that, 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 that as you study the text that, that you would conclude is just the opposite of what we've been told. Because the truth of the matter is, for the most part, we were all taught that Jesus wept because Lazarus died. Amen. I mean, if I were to ask for a show of hands, most of you probably agreed to the fact that uh, uh, you, you, you've been made to understand that, that what made Jesus weep was the fact that Lazarus died. Amen? Say amen if that, that, that's what somebody told you. If that's what that you've been led, that led to, to understand because we have a dead brother and two doubting sisters. And as we, we see the humanity of Jesus, as we see Jesus expressing his, his feelings toward the ones that he loved, it appears because what comes quite obvious to us is that when someone dies, we weep. Now what's strange about that is because somewhere we were told that we're supposed to rejoice when folk leave and cry when a baby is born. You ever heard that before? Somebody even said that was in the Bible. I ain't found it yet. But someone said that we spoke, supposed to rejoice when someone dies. And we're supposed to cry. When a, come on now, I know I ain't the only one that heard that before. You heard that before. But then, but then, but then, if that makes sense, then why would Jesus be weeping now Lazarus is dead because generally that's what we do when someone dies 
we weep. And it just makes good sense that the reason Jesus wept is because Lazarus was dead. But according to the passage, when you back up to John chapter 11, verse number 11, what we come to discover is that Jesus does not identify death as we do. Y'all see this? John chapter 11, verse number 11. Now, now just to give you a little background, uh, uh, a Lazarus, uh, Jesus' friend, uh, 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 Mary and Martha's brother, uh, uh, was, was sick. Uh, he was so sick that he was about to die. And Mary and Martha got message to Jesus that Lazarus was about to die. And other than Jesus making his way to where Lazarus was sick, the text says that he waited two more days. Two more days. Two more days. Other than him quickly going to Lazarus, he delays for two more days because his response to the disciples is that his sickness is not unto death. Right here in the text, Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus is sick, his sickness is not unto death, but that they might bring glory to God. Y'all follow along with me. Lazarus, Lazarus' sickness was to bring glory to God. But after two days, Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies, Jesus gets the message, and in verse number 11, Jesus says, now it's time to go to Lazarus, because he's sleeping, and I got to go wake him up. And that's important to you and I, because Jesus don't see death like we see death. Jesus says, he's asleep, and I got to go wake him up. And the disciple says to Jesus, well, he's been sick. If he's sleeping, if he's resting, he's doing well. Jesus spoke plain and says, Lazarus is dead. Now, the reason he calls him dead here is because now he needs the disciples to understand what state that Lazarus is in. Now, in verse 11, he calls him sleep. But by verse number 13, he says, he's dead. Two days later, he makes his way to Bethany. When he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, let me bring y'all into my profession. <laughs> Let me take in the sacred <laughs> for a few minutes. Because anyone that's been dead for a period of four days without refrigeration starts to decompose. Come a little closer. Let me let you know what that's like. When a body begins to decompose, the skin begins to slip and slide off the flesh. We kind of heard it like this growing up when mama said, I'll slap you to the white meat. <laughs> See, the white meat was wet in the skin. The dark meat was gone. Then you got to the white meat. Lazarus had been dead for so long that it was down to the white meat. But the fact about it, when a body begins to decompose to the white meat, it has a terrible stench about it. So bad that you can't even stay in the environment that the dead body is in. After four days, Lazarus was dead and stinking and here comes Jesus and when Jesus when Jesus gets to Bethany 
uh, Martha heard that he was in town. And Martha ran out there to him. And she says, had you been here, our brother would not have died. Now that's important that we understand because too long have we been told that Jesus wept because Lazarus died. But I just showed you what looks dead to us looks sleeps to Jesus. Because Jesus has a way of waking up the dead out of their sleep. Amen. Amen. But the problem was, they never seen him do it before. They never seen it before. They never seen him respond like this. Yes, Mary and Martha knew that he could heal the sick. But they never seen him raise the dead. And so the Bible says that when he gets to Bethany, Martha runs out and she looks him in the face and she says, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus says, sir, he'll live again. He'll live again. And you know, let the truth be told, she should just start shouting right then. She should have started praising God right then because if Jesus said he lived, guess what? He'll live. Because if Jesus said it, you know, one of my favorite scriptures in the passage says, and it came to pass. Because whenever he says, it shall come to pass. He says, he says he'll live. And, and y'all, what she does next is she brings Jesus down to her level. And y'all, it's very dangerous when we bring Jesus to our level. She, she says, well, yeah, I, I know he'll live again. That's common sense. He'll live in the resurrection. She was aware of the resurrection, and she knew that the resurrection would cause him to live again. But what she was literally doing is bringing Jesus down to her level. And, and Jesus, Jesus says to her, I am what you're talking about. <laughs> he says, that's what you're speaking of. That I am. I am the resurrection. I am life. I got to wind it up. We got to start Sunday school. <laughs> but then when you drop down a little further, when Mary goes back home, Jesus makes his way to the house. Then Martha goes back home. Jesus makes his way to the house. Then Mary comes out, says to Jesus the same thing. Lord, had you been here, our brother would not have died. And then the text says that, that they, were, they were weeping and, and, and the others around them were weeping over Lazarus' death. But then Jesus started weeping. Not over Lazarus' death. Because of, of their lack of faith. Because they knew him as a healer. But they never seen him raise the dead. And y'all, that's a message that I'm going to have to hunk it off right here to you and I today. Is we need not limit Jesus. Just because you've never seen him do it before, that don't mean he can't do it. He can do everything but fail. And we need to, as people of God, need to depend on the Lord. We need to depend on the Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I see, I know you're the resurrection, they said. That's common sense. But reality is, he can do more than raise the dead. He can give them life. Oh, I wish I had some time, but it's up now. It's up now. Jesus, Jesus wept. Jesus wept because of the lack of faith. And the problem that you and I have, we cause Jesus to experience that same form of weeping because he's up in heaven right now looking over you and I, saying, give it to me. Stop trying to handle it yourself. You can't handle it. It's too heavy for you. Give it to me. 
I'm done, y'all. But, but somebody says, somebody said, and you heard him say it before, the Lord won't put no more on you than you can bear. I don't believe that. Because if you're able to bear it, you won't ever depend on him. But as soon as the load gets heavy, as soon as you're pressed down with problems, troubles, and situations, it'll cause you to fall down on your knees, look up to the Lord, and say, Lord, have mercy on me. That's when you're not able to bear. He has to put us in a position that we have to depend on him. We, we, know, we know he can heal the sick, but we've never seen him raise the dead. And I need you to know today, stop doubting God. Amen. Just because you prayed about a thing, just because you prayed about a situation, you stop doubting God. Because God is still the great I am. Amen.